This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. From an apologetics perspective, there are a lot of ways you could make the case for Christianity. You could talk about the reliability of the text of Scripture. You could focus on the empty tomb. Or you could point to the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, compared with every other religion on earth, and point out its uniqueness. But what about a perspective that focuses on the character of the Lord Jesus? My next guest puts it together in a fascinating new book that we're going to talk about. Author and speaker Tom Gilson joins us today. He serves as senior editor and ministry coordinator at The Stream and blogs at thinkingchristian.net. And today we'll be talking about his book, Too Good to Be False, How Jesus's Incomparable Character Reveals His Reality. Tom, wonderful to have you with us. How are you? I'm well, and thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. I think this is really interesting. You take an approach to the Lord in your book that you say has not been taken in a very long time by other authors, this focus on Jesus's character. Why focus on the sort of person Jesus was as a means of showing his true identity? This approach is very unique. Yeah, it is. And and the whole Bible study approach by which I came to, uh, to, to discover He's actually greater than I realized, even after 40-plus years of following him, greater than most of us have realized. That's, it's been a unique study getting to that point. Well, but right. It, there's, a, there's a beauty in Jesus' character that Christians very much need to stay in touch with, and we can get too used to it. I'm, and on the flip side of that, there's a beauty in Jesus' character that I think skeptics got too used to. <laughs> That, um, that they, they're, they're so accustomed to the story of Christ that when it comes to their explanations for where the Gospels came from, they, they create a, a theory, a story that, that basically depends on, you know, anybody could write a story. This one's easy. Hmm. Um, now, I'm, if any skeptics are listening right now, they're going, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> so I'd have to explain how I got to that point. But... It, it, it resolves down to we need to understand how Jesus is better than we knew, and nobody made up this story because it, it's too good a, a story to be false. Yeah, oh, I agree with you there. So when we're talking about Jesus's character, what makes his character unique? It almost sounds like a dumb question when I ask it because we know what made Jesus unique. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's sinless. We know all of that as Christians. Right. But what about his character was so unique? What stood out for you in your study? Yeah, there's lots of things. My favorite one, well, I got a couple of favorite ones, but these are things that have always been true, but we may not have, uh, have, have caught before because we haven't looked asked these kinds of questions. The, the, the one that has been gripping me the longest is Jesus' love is more amazing than we realize. Hmm. And the way I come to that conclusion is I think, uh, I actually have done this with different groups. I said, Think with me about all the powerful people that you know about. Let's leave out the Bible for now, because we're doing a comparison. 
Think with me about all the powerful people in history, but not just history, imagination too. So we're adding myth, legend, fiction, uh, Marvel movies, whatever. Think of all the people that have incredible power in, in the stories. Now, that's one list. Think about all the people in all the stories and all the history who have incredible compassion. They're other-centered. They're self-sacrificial. They're giving. Uh, what, what, what do you notice about those two lists? They don't, They're you, completely different. Yes, exactly. You don't have really powerful people who are really other-centered. Jesus is the incredible exception to that rule. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, Jesus, right. Even when you have people who are powerful, for example, if you talk about Marvel heroes, they're saving the world or saving America or what have you, they might give the puppy back to the little kid, but that can't compare to what Jesus did, for sure. That's for sure. Yeah, even Superman, who's, a, by the way, was, uh, I believe his uh, creator, Siglin Schuster, modeled Superman after Jesus. Yeah, he had incredible power, and he was very good, especially in the early versions of Superman. But talk about goodness, or talk about powers. Superman flies through space. Jesus created space. Hmm. That's not the same level of power. But even in the level of goodness, what what actually ruined me in a way, in the right sense of the word, that just dropped me to my knees to worship was when I realized that, you know, Superman would use his heat vision to warm up his coffee. Jesus never used his extraordinary power for his own benefit ever. Right. It was only for us. Right. Right. This is this as as characters in stories go, fiction or otherwise, there is nothing that comes anywhere near Jesus. He is he stands so far from the crowd. It's it's extraordinary. You're right about that. And that's, I mean, that's a new angle that I think a lot of us haven't considered. And I think immediately about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And he yeah. was starving and he didn't, I mean, he could have fed himself. He, he was the one who fed the 5,000 from the loaves and uh-huh. fishes and, and multiplied all the food for the crowds out of compassion for the crowds. He didn't give himself any food. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. It is. Uh, uh, another side of it, too. Someone asked me, well, um, what about his resurrection? Did he do that for himself? And they say, well, no, let's back this up a little bit. You don't get a resurrection without dying first. Yes. And, and Jesus, it's not just that Jesus didn't have to die for our sins. He didn't have to die at all because he didn't have a sin nature. But back it up a little bit further. Um, and the best way to put this in context is this, um, <laughs> this news story I read a couple of years ago about a guy in India who sued his parents for wrongful birth <laughs> and, and just ridiculous and they say you ought to compensate me for for having me born yeah and uh, and he got the sense that if he'd given advanced informed consent he would have been okay with it what jesus did jesus gave advanced conform, informed consent to come to earth as a helpless baby to grow up in a family to, to live with all of our junk to suffer an unjust trial, a brutal beating, a crucifixion out of love for us. And he didn't have to do that. Yeah. Any of it. Yeah. 
This yeah. is immense love. It is. It is. Well, and, and consented to be born and consented to die. I mean, Jesus says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority. And that's another thing that you talk about in the book is Jesus is his own authority. He rarely actually cites Old Testament scripture. He mentions Old Testament scripture some, but he usually speaks just out of his own authority, which is absolutely unique. It is. Yeah, when he, when he cites scriptures for background information, when he speaks truth, it's on his own. So that, um, that all the prophets said, thus says the Lord. And they were speaking for God when they did that. Jesus spoke for God, but what he said was, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, he didn't look to anybody but himself as having the authority to speak scriptural truth. You and I can't get away with that. Only he could. Yeah. And and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the crowds were astonished, for he spoke as authority, as one having authority, not as their teachers did. And I used to think that meant he spoke with a really deep voice. Yeah, but <laughs> but what it really meant was he spoke as if, you know, if I say it, it's true. This is the way it is. Right. And yeah. yet did it with absolute humility. How many people, even in literature, as you talk about, or legend, would have all authority and not be brash about it, not be, you know, kind of pounding their chest. I'm in charge here. He never did that. Yeah. It, it, this is another thing that makes it hard to believe the skeptics version and of, of where this legend came from is there's. There's a very difficult to, to, to create mix in there where he says, essentially, your life, everybody's life, all of history depends on me. And yet he does it without um, losing that sense of humility. <laughs> you think that's an easy story to make up? No. Uh, no. And yet it's, you know, for 2,000 years, it's, it's, it's worked. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely true, as you say, and this is why the title of your book is so good, Too Good to Be False. We're going to come back after this quick break. Tom Gilson with us. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Stay with us. Gofran and Khaled, two little boys from Syria, were orphaned four years ago. But when they came to Lebanon with their aunt as refugees, Heart for Lebanon was waiting for them. Heart for Lebanon was there to provide Christian education, emergency supplies, and the hope of the gospel to these two boys. Now they listen attentively to the Bible stories they're hearing and are memorizing Bible verses. They have hope now because of what God is doing through Heart for Lebanon. Your investment of $116 will help two families to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Call now, 888-247-5499. Here's Camille Melke, founder of Heart for Lebanon, to explain why he's encouraged right now. You could sense maybe from my voice the excitement, right? The sense of God has us here in a time and location in history that is unprecedented. This is an opportunity time, God-sized opportunity time like never before. 
Right now, you could see a, a wave of people in great anticipation at what God will further do in our midst in the years to come. Because I believe that the crisis in Syria is a long-term crisis, unfortunately so. But I also believe that uh, right now we are starting to reap what has been sowed for many, many years in the lives of the refugees. We are seeing churches full of Syrian refugees. We're seeing Muslims coming to Christ. We're seeing children uh, now being the greatest testimony and the best evangelists within their communities. This is the result of many years of hard work and greater, I believe, by faith, far greater results are coming in the near future. Your gift of $116 will allow Heart for Lebanon to help two families survive during the next 60 days. Call now, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com, 888-247-5499. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. So good to have you with us here on Janet Meffer today. My guest is Tom Gilson, who is senior editor and ministry coordinator at The Stream and author of Too Good to Be False, How Jesus' Incomparable Character Reveals His Reality. Uh, what an eye-opener here. It's like looking at a multifaceted diamond and seeing brilliance that you had not seen before. But brilliance actually is something that you mention about Jesus, Tom, in your book, that he had a surpassing brilliance, for example, in how he answered the Pharisees and how he put together the parables. Can you speak to that a little bit on how brilliant Jesus was and how he spoke to people? Sure. Yeah, there's a sense in which his stories, oh, they're so simple. It looks like anybody could do that. Um, but what makes Jesus stand out here is that he had the right answer for everyone. You try that. <laughs> I don't. And, 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 and he, uh, you never get the sense that he would ever walk away from a conversation going, yeah, if I did that again, I could do it better next time. <laughs> yeah. He just, he, he had the right answer first time, every time, when it was someone coming to him in deep need, or whether it was someone coming to him like the Pharisees were trying to trap him, <laughs> whatever he was hit with, including in the trials, um, but before Pilate and before the, the council, uh, he just, he had the right answer for every occasion. That, no matter how simple the words come out of your mouth, you can't do that without being really, really brilliant. No, that's right. That's right. And and yet not over the top with rhetoric either. I mean, I see sometimes people who are into different philosophies or different religions give credence to something just because the person who was talking about it was a very verbose, you know, very, very intelligent sounding. I mean, Jesus was very simple. I mean, you think about the woman caught in adultery. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Brilliant, but absolutely simple. And everybody got the point. And I don't see anybody else in human history who was able to talk like Jesus for good reason. I know. I tried once. I tried to give an example in my book, and I had to put in parentheses after that an apology. It's like, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to make up something that sounds like Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, that, that one line you just quoted, uh, how many thousands of years later are we are we repeating that line? It just contained so much in so few words. It did. It did. It was wonderful. There, something else you talk about, there's so many good things. People have to read your whole book so they get the whole thing, Tom, here. But you talk about his paradoxical leadership. And this is something I don't think I've ever thought about before. He never learned from a mistake. He didn't improve. He made a point of not giving straight answers. I mean, he would in many ways fail some of these leadership lists that are put forward in best-selling self-help books, wouldn't he? 
Oh, he sure would. There's, there's a, and I studied leadership theory in grad school. He's, um, he does a lot of things wrong. The part where he says, yeah, you can be my friends if you do what I command you. That's, that's not how leaders talk if they're going to succeed. Uh, the only way you can, okay, first of all, that's guaranteed to fail. Except, okay, Jesus broke that rule. He's not a failure of a leader. 2,000 years later, he's got a movement going strong. So, so why, why was he an exception to the rule? And we have to look at what it was. Well, okay, if you never make a mistake, then you never have to admit to a mistake. That's rare. Um, if you have all authority, you can speak as if you have all authority. And if you have the kind of love that he had, people will follow you. And I wish I could have seen it firsthand to see just what it was that caused some people to know that he was for real. It had to have been incredible. Oh, I agree. It, it had to be incredible. I, it's just amazing. And yet, as you say in the book, he's not just unique, but Jesus was uniquely good. And you've touched on that some, but we know the Lord was sinless, uh, but he never used his powers for his own benefit, as you said before. Uh, can you speak to the goodness that he had, just the profound goodness that he did not, you know, retaliate, obviously, and he didn't put people down and he, you know, just absolutely sinless and it came across to people he encountered. Yeah, I mean, to add to what I've already said, probably the, the best thing to add to it is that he uh, he lived it. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, love your enemies uh, and to pray for those who persecute you. It's another thing to be hanging on the cross and say, I forgive them. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had this incredible integrity of character. He had people trying to knock him off course everywhere. His family, his countrymen in Luke 4, the, 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 his opponents, everybody was trying to knock him off course. But he knew what he was there for, which was to seek and save the lost, to, to give his life a ransom for many, to preach the kingdom, and he stuck with it. That integrity is, was, was always under challenge, and yet he lived it out. He did. It's just, again, it hits you afresh when you, you go into all of these details in your book. Wow, I hadn't thought of that before, but but totally true. And yet he was God. Obviously, that makes you absolutely unique in human history, but it makes you mm-hmm. unique if you are, you know, people who reduce Jesus to a great teacher or a great prophet. Who else has claimed to be God who lived the life to back it up and when was raised from the dead to prove it? Yeah, there's no comparison. There's, there's just, and this is why, you know, a lot of the, the middle part of the book is devoted to the skeptics challenge that the, the story of Jesus came about when his, you know, there was a real Jesus. He was a leader. He died. They were bummed. Okay, what are we going to do now? Oh, well, we'll invent a resurrection and he can still be the leader. I'm oversimplifying it because I don't have much time to do it the right way, but you know, and then the story spread all around the Mediterranean, and it got changed. There was this telephone game thing where it kept getting changed along the way. And it finally landed in four Gospels that were written down for different theological and political purposes. And they all landed on this unbelievably unique, consistent, incredibly good character of Jesus. I don't think that—I don't think the skeptic's explanation for where the Gospels came from explains the Gospels that we have. They would explain a, a, a Gospel or a set of Gospels where you had this mixed-up mismatch of a person. Jesus is not a scrambled personality. No. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. So so how does this actually, all this evidence that you're showing, both Christians and skeptics alike, how does this also confirm the historicity of the Gospels? What does that do for our defense of the Gospels and, and those writings in and of themselves being part of the canon and actually being the Word of God and showing the skeptics, see, this all ties together? Yeah, there's both negative defenses and positive defenses. A negative defense would be to say the skeptics are wrong. And I think what you do is you just look at the skeptic theory, which I've only been able to just barely touch on here, and say their answer doesn't work. Their their answer is obviously wrong. So either either they've got another alternate theory they're going to come up with, or else the story must be true. Um, So you put them in a position where they got to do some scrambling if they're going to stick with their legend theory. Yes, that's right. But from a from a positive point of view. just the sense that we've got a character who is as different from all the rest of humanity, both in reality and in imagination, tells us something. Well, it's like every religion, even the communists, want a piece of Jesus. There's the Hindu Jesus. There's the socialist Jesus. There's this everybody Jesus. Right. Because everybody recognizes there's something in him. And as my friend Craig Hazen says, if everybody recognizes there's something in him, why don't you go look at him? And see it for real. Exactly. Yes. Right. Well, they want him on his own ter- on their own terms. They don't want him yeah. on his terms, which was a problem going all the way back to the New Testament. We saw the same exactly. problem going on during Jesus' day. You know, one of the chapters that you also have in your book, Tom, is how Jesus became so easy to take for granted. And that kind of struck mm-hmm. me, just the way you phrased that, because I think that's also sometimes true of us. We just take it for granted that Jesus did all he did and said all he said and accomplished all he did. What are your thoughts on how he has been taken for granted over the years? Yeah, culture-wide, it goes back to just changes in our culture when we, when we think about the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, and we start to think about how the world is, is a mechanical system. And so we don't need a God. And so we, we begin to think that we can solve everything in our own human terms, and, and so we don't need a Jesus so much. That's not good philosophy. It's not good thinking, but that's the way we fell. And then there's this whole thing about pluralism, where we've got the gospel is just one truth among many, because we got, you know, travel, transportation, everything. The, the Christian world got to know the non-Christian world. We got, okay, well, we can't be so... Uh, proud to say we've got the only truth. And so we we put Jesus as one among many. That That's just submerged him uh, based on a wrong picture of who he is in, in the midst of a lot of other worldviews, when in fact, who he is rises far above. And the other side of it, too, uh, that's, that's kind of a grand worldview perspective. And the individual perspective I think it's just that we get so used to hearing the stories, we forget that if we look at him from a different light, we can be surprised all over again and see, wow, he's greater than I knew. Yeah. Oh, that's true. You know, I always think about what we discuss when it comes to Bible study, that the the, the Bible is simple enough in its basic message for anybody to understand, but it's deep enough that the greatest scholar can never plumb its depths. But the same is true Mm -hmm. of Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus is the word, obviously. But when we look at the character of Jesus, we look at what he said, what he did, and the fresh perspective that you're bringing to the person of Jesus, he really is the diamond you can't admire too much. 
I mean, and that's even an understatement. There, you cannot yeah. possibly look at Jesus and not find something new in him to you that does not make him newly, you know, worthy of worship in a way that you might not have thought of yesterday. Right. I'm hearing a lot of readers saying they're having this experience from the from the uh, Internet reviewer you never heard of to the distinguished professor at Biola University saying, this is new for me for worship, but it's reflecting what happened to me, is that, you know, I've been a Christian over 40 years. I knew the doctrine of Jesus' deity. I knew I could worship him. I knew I should worship him. But when I started seeing him this way, I couldn't help but fall on my face before him and cry out, you are my God. Perfect. Tom, Tom, that's so great. We're going to leave it there. But the name of the book, Too Good to be False by Tom Gilson. You can check it out. And Tom, just a delight to have you here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It's a good conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, I do too. Thanks, Tom. And we'll be right back. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. When it comes to the state of abortion in the United States, a new report out from the Charlotte Lozier Institute indicates that the long-term decline in the abortion rate in our nation may be slowing, and chemical abortion has a lot to do with it. So we're going to find out more about this now from Tessa Longvons, who is research associate at the Charlotte Lozier Institute and author of this report called New Abortion Trends in the United States, A First Look. Tessa, so good to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on, Janet. Oh, glad you're here. Tell us a little bit about this report and what you were trying to really assess as you were looking at the latest abortion trends. Yes. So in the United States, abortion reporting is handled at the state level and states decide what data, if any, they're going to collect and then voluntarily share it with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. And the CDC will publish national reports, but those tend to be slow. And we wanted to get an advanced look at the latest state statistics. So we looked at all the available state reports for 2018 to see what was going on with abortion, which direction abortion rates were headed, and just to get a general idea of where things stood in advance of the national reports. Very good. So when you're looking at medical abortions, the typical abortions that people think about when a woman goes into an abortion clinic and has a, you know, a regular abortion, surgical abortion. Where do those abortion rates stand at the moment from what the data is telling you? So medical abortions, the ones that are uh, induced with the abortion pill or RU486, those have been increasing. It's been almost exactly 20 years since RU486, the abortion pill, was approved by the FDA, and since then we've seen a steady rise in medical abortion in the United States, particularly in the last 10 years of data. And in fact, between 2017 and 2018, in all of the state reports that we looked at, medical abortions went up by almost 9%. Mm. So definitely increasing, 
making up a larger and larger proportion of all abortions in the United States. Um, now around 41% of all abortions. Well, right. Definitely because an increasing trend. It's, yeah, that's really disheartening. And and we've seen a lot of abortion clinics close over the years. And we know that the abortion giants, you know, Planned Parenthood and the like, have really been all in favor of chemical abortions mm-hmm. as a way to keep the abortion rates up. What what about non-chemical abortions? Do we know the stats on those, what, the women who actually go into the clinic and have an abortionist kill the child? Yes, so surgical abortions, as opposed to medical abortions, in the past few years have actually uh, decreased a little bit as a compared to chemical abortions or medical abortions. So there's been a switch from the surgical abortions where you would have to go in and have the actual procedure transitioning to abortions where you would just take a combination of pills to abort the baby. Right. So it's been a, it's been a shift. Right. And and of course it's difficult when you have an option of taking RU486 or the like to, you know, it's not the same as being able to stand outside an abortion clinic and protest and pray and try to speak with the mothers to dissuade them from having an abortion. I mean, what sorts of challenges has chemical abortion created for the pro-life community in our ability to really impact the rates of abortion and bring them down, if not eradicate them altogether? What kind of challenge is this, would you say, for pro-lifers? Well, I think there are multiple challenges. Um, Of course, there are always significant risks when you decentralize or demedicalize abortion. And so we are concerned for the women who will be undergoing chemical or medical abortions because there is less and less medical oversight. Um, It's more dangerous less opportunity for informed consent and really reaching out to women with uh, the information that might change their minds before they undergo a medical abortion. So that's definitely a concern. And then, like you said, just not knowing where these pills are going and which hands they're falling into. That's also very concerning as well. So it's something that we've been paying close attention to and are worried when we see these abortions increasing. Yeah, very, very, very good. I mean, that's very important for people to understand. But the abortion industry says that these chemical abortion protocols are safe, right? But does the data back that up? Well, part of the problem is there really isn't a lot of data. Um, There is some that has been reported to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. But really now, the uh, distributor of the abortion pill is only required to report deaths to the FDA. Mm. And that's only deaths that they are aware of. So if a woman has a very serious complication but survives, or if there's a death that occurs but is not immediately linked to the abortion pill, or the, the doctors who treat the woman aren't aware that she was undergoing a medical or chemical abortion, that might not even be re- reported to the Food and Drug Administration. So it's really difficult to tell how many women are being impacted by this, not to mention all of the unborn babies whose lives are being lost. Yeah, good point. Tessa, how long can you take RU486 or some of these other chemical abortion pills during the course of a pregnancy? Is there a point in the gestation of the mother where you can't take the pill anymore and it will work? Uh, What is the time period when they would recommend you take it in order to abort? Well, that is something that has been pushed and pushed by the abortion industry. Um, The abortion industry is aware that 
it becomes less effective with increasing length of pregnancy. And at the beginning, it was just a few weeks, very early in pregnancy, that um, the FDA recommended that the abortion pill be used. But that was pushed out to 10 weeks in 2016 as the official recommendation. And now we've seen abortion centers like Planned Parenthood promoting its use up to 11 weeks of gestation or even beyond. Mm. And, of course, this is concerning because there's always the concern that the pregnancy wasn't dated completely accurately and that the woman could be put at risk by taking the abortion pill too late in pregnancy and experiencing some severe complications. Right, right, because that's many weeks after the heart starts beating. So when you're looking at some of this legislation, heartbeat legislation, for example, would that ever be able to be used to rein in chemical abortion use with these pills? That I mean, that's hard to regulate, isn't it? Once a woman has the pills, you can't very well go into her house and figure out what week of pregnancy she's taking it. Exactly, and that's another concern is that if um, a woman goes home with the pills and maybe isn't completely sure and decides to, de- to delay taking them, then she may unknowingly go past that, that benchmark of when it's safe to take them and um, not have medical supervision or a doctor there to make sure that she's safe. So not only is the unborn baby harmed, but the unborn baby's mother can be harmed too. Sure. It's that's a bad right. situation. Yeah. Now, did you find there were particular states where chemical abortions or abortions in general were higher than they have been in the past? What are you finding out when you look state by state? Yes. So we looked at states in two groups based on their overall policies and attitudes toward abortion. We looked at states that are protective of life as compared to states that are more permissive of abortion. And we found that in both groups of states, the abortion totals had unfortunately gone up a little bit between 2017 and 2018, but they had gone up by a much greater margin in the permissive states Mm. as compared to the uh, protective states, which was interesting to us and encouraging that there does seem to be a difference um, in the states based on how they approach abortion and their policies and overall attitudes toward it. the uh, permissive states saw increases of more than 4% hmm. in 2018, while the protective states saw increases of less than 1%. Goodness. Wow. Well, and we don't want to see any percentage hike at all in the rate of abortion, obviously, but it does make a difference legislatively what is on the books. And I suppose this is all the more reason to continue to work and to pray for this good legislation that we've seen enacted across the country in various states and also some of the action of President Trump to continue to fight for the lives of the unborn. Well, you can check out this report at LozierInstitute.org. Tessa Longbond's with us from the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thank you so much, Tessa for your work and for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Janet. It was great to talk with you. You too. Take care and thanks again. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Kevin Sorbo of the hit films God's Not Dead and Let There Be Light gives his thoughts on the scourge of abortion. One of the greatest attacks in America was an attack perpetrated by our very own Supreme Court. Now, subsequent to that, there have been 70 million babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. 
That is more than the entire population of Canada and Australia combined. And that's why Kevin Sorbo also supports Preborn. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the Ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Will you join us in the cause for life? By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561, 855 855- You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I hope I can get through this in 10 minutes. I'm going to give it my level best effort. There were a number of Christians who were cited during a protest over a mask mandate and social distancing mandate in Moscow, Idaho. This is where Pastor Doug Wilson has his church. A lot of people know Doug Wilson, and some of these people at least were from that church and that fellowship. I want to play, though, some of the audio from the man who was arrested, one of them. His name is Gabriel Wrench. He's a Moscow Republican for the Lata County Commission. He is running, I guess, in November against the Democrat incumbent. He was one of the people who was cited and is involved in a podcast, or I guess you would call it a podcast, called Cross Politic. And he and some of the other people who were involved in this particular protest talked about it on a recent show. Listen to cut one. Our mayor on Monday voted to extend the mass resolution through January 5th. Oh, my goodness. So requiring everybody in town where you can't social distance uh, to wear a mask. So you need a mask if you can't social distance. Well, our church today went to City Hall and or a lot of people. I wouldn't say just our church. A bunch of people in the community um, uh, went to City Hall and went to sing psalms in the parking lot at City Hall. And uh, and so we're singing psalms. We just kicked off the first psalm. Uh, I'm standing there with my mom uh, uh, right next to me, and we're we're kind of the closest to the police. And Pastor Wilson warned us. He said, if you guys aren't going to social distance, uh, you're probably going to get a ticket. That's what the police had communicated to me. Okay. And so everyone actually kind of got a little closer. In that moment. <laughs> yeah, the, crowd, the crowd's kind of scooted closer to one right, another. Right. And so we started singing psalms, and the cops— hey. The cops Tyler. walked up to me and uh, my mom first because we're kind of the closest to them. Right. It wasn't they right. weren't singling anybody out, and uh, they asked my mom, "You know, are you guys are you guys together?" And my mom's like, "We're family." And she grabs my arm, <laughs> and then um, and then I grabbed my buddy Tyler, who's in the studio right Just now. I grabbed in. my buddy Tyler, and I said to the cops, "I said, but we're not." <laughs> 
after that, the cop came to, to talk to me and he said, give me your license. Um, I'm going to write you a ticket. Um, so okay. the cop and I said, I said, you don't need to do this. Uh-huh. That was my first spot. I was like, you don't need to do this. You don't need to write me a ticket. Uh, and, and the cop said, you know, repeated himself, give me your license. And I said, look, you're, you're better than this. Uh, you know, you, it's your job to actually defend the people. Your right. job is actually for the citizens, not the mayor. Right. Right. Now the mayor, the mayor is your boss, but your job is actually the people. Okay. But we understand that the police arrest according to what the laws actually are and cite people under ordinances that are passed by local government who are elected by the people. That's how our constitutional republic works. We get mad when the BLM protesters who are breaking the law don't get arrested by police, don't we? Why is that? Because we have laws on the books. And this is very different, I would say, in terms of attitude versus what I experienced years ago when I had spent some time at Operation Rescue Protest. Those Christians went into those moments fully expecting to be arrested and fully cooperative with police. They were fine with being arrested. They understood that there were consequences to standing up for what was right. They didn't get in cops' faces and say, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. They went along with it. Because they knew the cops were just doing their job. Now, yes, the cops have not arrested BLM protesters in a lot of circumstances, and that is frustrating. But it's not that they don't have the right to do it. They choose not to. What are we to say as Christians? Don't arrest us under the law because they got away with it? That doesn't make much sense to me. Now, listen, more here is said by Gabe. Listen to cut two. The reason why we're doing an emergency live stream tonight is because I got arrested for not social distancing or wearing a mask in, while singing psalms in public yeah. at City Hall. You, don't, City you Hall. don't have to wear a mask eating because the virus apparently knows better when you're opening your mouth for food yeah. or when you're opening your mouth for we're singing. Done. So here's the deal. When we I was, are done when, with this whole thing. When hey, I was, we are done. When I was getting checked out, so I, was, I got booked in jail. I was in jail for about two hours. Mm-hmm. And as they were debooking me or whatever they call it um the i'm walking out and i go by their office which is right next to where i'm getting booked out and there's uh three deputies in the office and two of them aren't wearing masks and sitting right next to each other and i said hey should they get arrested because they aren't social distancing or wearing a mask because i that's why i just got arrested for right should they and and one of the deputy wearing i said just get out of here just leave just leave and i was like no no i was like they they aren't wearing a mask they should get arrested right this is, I, and I said, you guys are applying arbitrary yeah, that's standards. Absolutely, absolutely arbitrary. I just asked them. Right. I just asked them in the footage here, are you going to arrest me? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and then I, Gabe and knew they that wouldn't, he wouldn't arrest get, you. And, and Gabe knew that it was better to get the footage. And Gabe was like, don't mess up the footage. Yeah, don't mess up the footage. Do you note how the mood here, and I understand they're doing a show, but from the very beginning of the show, it's very frat boy like I don't know how else to put it there's a lot of humor and joking around and sound effects and I thought this doesn't sound like a serious sober conversation about constitutional rights nor is this an issue over freedom of religion think about this for a moment how many months have I spent standing up for the small pastors and the large pastors who have worked in California to get their sanctuaries back open did you know what in the state of Idaho their churches have been open since May 1st They're not fighting that serious battle of obeying Hebrews 10.25. That's a biblical command to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we did suspend that, practically all of us, at the very beginning. But when we saw that there was a double standard and leftist protesters got away with it, but Christians were stymied and abortion clinics and liquor stores got away with it, but Christians were stymied. We had pastors who would stand up and start filing lawsuits, and rightly so. 
Rightly so. And look, I understand the hypocrisy as well. That would be maddening to be arrested or cited for not wearing a mask or not socially distancing and then see that the cop doesn't have a mask. Of course, that's maddening. I I don't blame them at all. And I don't have any problem with a mask mandate protest. I don't have any problem with that at all. I think that you're right as an American to go before the city council or whatever magistrate you're under in your particular jurisdiction and complain about it and work for change. I guess there's even talk about having a referendum. But I'll tell you something else that bothers me about this. When I watched the footage, they were very much in the cops' faces. And again, this is a big contrast with what I saw at pro-life demonstrations. Totally different attitude. There was not an attitude of compliance and politeness. I'm not saying they were overtly rude. But there was one Christian in particular who kept using profanity. He kept using profanity to the cops and the other Christians standing next to him were laughing and agreeing with it. And I thought to myself, what kind of witness is this for Jesus Christ? You're going to stand up in the face of a police officer who is just doing his job and you're going to start using profanity and claim that you are representing the Lord God Almighty and you're his ambassador? Uh Uh-uh, that is flat out wrong. Then they were claiming, some other people were claiming, and Doug Wilson made this claim as well in a blog post that he put out, that people were being arrested for singing psalms. There was another comment on the show, Cross Politic, they're arresting people for singing Amazing Grace. They didn't arrest you for singing Amazing Grace. They cited you over the issue of not wearing masks and not socially distancing. And Gabe mentioned in his comments that you heard just a couple of minutes ago that he did it on purpose. He put his arm around his friend and he said, we're not family. I mean, he was doing it on purpose. Fine, but then expect to get arrested. And here's the other portion of of, of the whole thing. Of the five people cited, this is according to the Moscow Pullman Daily News, of the five people cited, it says two also were arrested for suspicion of resisting or obstructing an officer. And the fifth, Gabe Branch, was arrested but not charged with allegedly refusing to identify himself to police. Now, I don't see any sort of biblical justification for resisting or obstructing an officer or for refusing to identify yourself to police. Now, you can make the case, well, I don't have to. Why would you be like that, though? You're trying to make a broader point about masking and social distancing and the lack of necessity for it, in your opinion, because although there has been a spike in COVID-19 cases in that area there in that county, people are saying, come on, masks don't work. And, you know, I've made this case as well. A lot of these masks don't work. I think it's ridiculous, too. But there's a way to do it, not by swearing at cops and refusing to go along with what they ask you to do and getting in their faces and saying, you work for the people. No, they have to obey the law. They're the police. We want the police to obey the law. That's what they're there to do. And the thing that bothers me the most about it is this. This is not about freedom of religion. Any, anybody in Moscow, Idaho, he, who has a problem with the mask mandate and social distancing requirements can go to the city council and protest or have this referendum. I'm fine with that. Go ahead and do it. But this undercuts, if you are deliberately trying as a Christian body to make trouble for the police over something that doesn't involve a biblical command and the government tyrannizing Christians, then what you're really doing is you're undercutting the seriousness of the fight that's taking place in states like California, where those people can't even get their sanctuaries open. Those people are fighting a religious liberty battle. This isn't a religious liberty battle. This is a freedom battle. You can fight it. I'm not against that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't fight it, but I'm saying 
Your churches have been open since the beginning of May. Why don't you just praise the Lord that you can be in church and worship freely because your brothers and sisters in California don't have the same freedom you do. And maybe your energy would be better spent while you're protesting your city council in appropriate ways helping your brothers and sisters in states where they can't even go to church and obey Hebrews 10.25. So let's not equate both of these battles as being equally serious. And let's behave like Christians when we're doing any sort of protesting. That's paramount. Got to leave it there. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time on Janet Meffer Today. Today.